Hello, my name is Justin McClure, and I'm here today with... Will Sloan. And you're listening to The Important Cinema Club. And today, we're going to be talking about 1939. No, that's not a prequel to Steven Spielberg's 1941. We're actually going to be talking about the year itself. Most specifically, two films. Gone with the Wind and... Wizard of Oz. But why this year? I think it's because it's Hollywood's greatest year. I mean, just look at the films that were nominated for the Oscars in Outstanding Production. Gone with the Wind, Dark Victory, Goodbye Mr. Chips, Love Affair, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, Ninochka of Mice and Men, Stagecoach, The Wizard of Oz, Withering Heights. There's no The Artist to be seen in there. My God, uh, there are more movies that year, though, too. Only Angels Have Wings, The Roaring Twenties, Gunga Den... Uh, Drums Along the Mohawk, The Hunchback of Notre Dame. Uh, I don't know, the Marx Brothers at the circus. I'm starting to run out now. (laughs) And this is a year that people always bring up. There's been multiple books written about this year. It was a time of great creation. The studio system was at its peak with its seven-year contracts and locking people down and having things moving like a factory line. But... 1939, even though it's often considered Hollywood's greatest year, it really comes down to the two movies, Mm. Gone with the Wind and The Wizard of Oz. And let's face it, the whole idea that 1939 is the greatest year... Not true. Can I just point out what came out in 1940? Mm-hmm. Fantasia, Pinocchio, The Great Dictator, Rebecca, His Girl Friday, The Grapes of Wrath, Foreign Correspondent, The Bank Dick. Uh, you know, It that's... sounds like we should be doing 1940 instead of 39. Frankly, there are more <laughs> movies I love there. <laughs> but... We're here, we're trapped, we're locked in our chairs, and we're going to talk about Gone with the Wind. Oh man, sorry, I'm looking at 1941 now. Citizen Kane, How <laughs> Green Was My Valley, The Maltese Falcon, Dumbo, Sullivan's Travels. All right, so this episode's going to be about 1941. The Wolfman, <laughs> The Lady Eve. Eh, the Wolfman's not so hot. It's all right. Yeah, I've only seen it once. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Gone with the Wind. A perfect double bill with the Wolfman, though. Uh, <laughs> this is a film that when people talk about awards or the biggest movie ever, this one always comes up. It is still, adjusted for inflation, the most popular movie of all time. Based on the incredibly popular novel by Margaret Mitchell, this is a movie that essentially created the mega production as we know it. This is the movie. Mm-hmm. This, this is like... Almost four hours long. This is like, name a movie. Gone with the Wind. Yeah. <laughs> you have like a torrid love story. You have melodrama. You have these beautiful painted backgrounds. This incredible swelling score by Max Steiner. It's, this- your, it's your classic four quadrant movie. You know, mm-hmm. everyone from, there's something there for everyone. There's action and war for the guys. There's torrid love for the girls. Mm-hmm. It's based on a book, so it's sort of prestigious, but it's, Pretty simple stuff. It's also a big piece of exploitative trash. And, you know, it's a complex movie because it's uh, racist and it's full of problematic stuff. And its protagonist is an awful, awful person. Yeah, but also uh, a great character and a complex character. No, she's just terrible. Oh, come now. I know. And I just Mm. want to talk about this because I've actually watched Gone with the Wind a few times in my life. Me and Will uh, read a book this week. Frankly, my dear, Gone with the Wind Revisited by Molly Haskell, um, the author of From Reverence to Rape, a great touchstone book. And I just wanted to know from a different perspective than my own, like, how did people love Gone with the Wind? And in this book, it basically lays out that, yeah, Molly Haskell knows that um, Scarlett O'Hara, the lead of Gone with the Wind, is an awful person. But this character also shows things in movies and in the novel as well that like people don't do which is like they fight for what they want they're willing to do anything and they will always keep on going and that's very important and led to the book and the movie's popularity i mean it's it's a movie that's very much of its time because Mm -hmm. you know as she points out it's a character that even though it's set during the civil war it's a character that was very influenced by you know the flapper movement Mm -hmm. it's also a movie that was loaded with more sexual suggestiveness than was in practically any movie at that time. Ah, I believe uh, you should be kissed and you should be kissed often. (laughs) Yeah, you should be kissed hard and often by someone who knows it well and who can do it in multiple positions. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) Who can do it from behind and on top. That's the sort of... In every room, I'll kiss you. (laughs) Yeah, that's the sort of kissing you need. Uh, But I mean, there is, in fact, uh, the famous rape scene in the film, Mm. you know? Uh, I think this is a film that my dislike for it also comes from the way that pop culture has kind of like 
absorbed it and just made it every day. Like, uh, Will sent me a photo in a supermarket. They just found a magazine new about the history of Gone with the Wind. And not a uh, revisionist magazine of any kind. It's at, if you know, if you're in Canada right now, go to your local Rexall. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's a beautiful, glossy Gone with the Wind magazine that has articles about the sets and the costumes. And I don't know, I didn't really read it. Probably something in there about Hattie McDaniel. But Uh, like watching the movie, like it's so beautiful and it's so long and it actually moves really fast. But again, my big problem is that like Scarlett O'Hara as a character is an awful human being. Like she destroys everything in her life. Even the main relationship with Rat Butler is one that is toxic and awful. And that like the way that we've kind of perceived it as an audience is that, oh, it's a beautiful love story. We always see that photo of them leaning over in the sun or like the painted poster that promises all this romance. When in reality, it's like the worst kind of relationship that you would never want your worst enemy to have. Okay. So this was my second time seeing this movie in my life. Mm -hmm. I, I last saw it 15 years ago. I don't like this movie. Mm -hmm. I don't enjoy this movie. Um, I probably enjoyed it more than you do. Probably. That said, I think it's a very rich object and it has a lot of interesting things in it. And, you know, I was kind of taken aback on this viewing by kind of how difficult these two main characters are and how unpleasant their relationship is. And yet the fact that the movie was so popular and the fact that this relationship has resonated across decades. Well, like the proof is in the pudding somewhere that like, this is a resonant relationship to people and that has to be dealt with. I know. And like the issue that I have with it is that when it is held up to this high esteem Mm -hmm. and I know someone, uh, a much older person who loves gone with the wind, the movie and the book, she is the most awful person I know. Okay. And I, and I feel like not everybody who loves this movie is like that, but I feel like it speaks to those kind of people because the character Scarlett O'Hara, the movie makes no bones and doesn't try to sympathize her in any way. She's awful. She over and over again, like, drops people to the side, will abandon people. I, th- I think you're maybe a little hard on her and a little hard on the movie's relationship with her because, I mean, the the empathy toward... She, she is a very, you know, bad and difficult character in mm-hmm. many ways, but the, the movie, I think... You know, in that scene, that famous scene where she says, I'll never be hungry again. Yeah. Like, I think you feel some empathy with her in that scene. No. No? No. Because you, she, you don't she... feel empathy with her and, you know, this woman who, like, as the South is destroyed around her and, and as her comfortable life is taken away from her, she has to rebuild Tara by herself. No. Because in the previous scene, she, like, yells at her slaves and says she will whip them. She then, in the later scene, mm-hmm. um, takes prisoners and treats them like slaves because she wants to rebuild this thing that is just property that like how about you treat somebody with a little bit of dignity like the whole movie is what america is about right it's a story (laughs) of capitalism which is that you will do whatever you want to be on top you will destroy everybody like this movie knows she's bad like they have the character played by olivia de havilland who is like the nicest person in the world (laughs) and her love for scarlett o'hara literally destroys her right like it almost says like if you try to be a good person you will die right so it's better to just be like shit because at the end of the day even if everything leaves you you will still have your property that's true but but i mean the other thing that's kind of interesting about scarlett o'hara uh played brilliantly by vivian lee yes um, she's very good in this movie incredible but uh, never sympathetic and the movie never tries to make it. But, but she is quite a magnetic screen yeah, well, I mean, she's very charismatic. Yeah. Like a monster, like Henry Portrait of the Serial Killer. It's, like, <laughs> it's fun to watch on screen. Sure. But I mean, I think another kind of interesting paradox in the character is that she is this strong, independent, yes. like, vicious woman. But, Absolutely. But she's also this woman who feels the need to be tamed and feels the need to have, like, she's putting herself in the line of Rhett Butler. Mm-hmm. Um, and... Uh, she's constantly throwing herself at, you know, Ashley, mm-hmm. uh, this this nice guy, sort of guy who doesn't Milk want her. toast, who doesn't want her. But, but, but she, she only wants him yeah. when she can't have him as That's well. Right. And like the obsession forms out of that thing. And she wants to be tamed and humiliated and degraded in some way by yeah. Rat Butler. I mean, Margaret Mitchell, in the letters that she sent after the book was published, because she never wrote another novel and basically became a letter writer, is that like she kept saying that she actually wanted to write the book about a good character. Character. She mm-hmm. wanted to make a book about like, 
fighting on, doing the right thing, and that she didn't want it to be about like these bed jumpers like in the jazz age that was <laughs> happening. And what ended up happening was that the Scarlett O'Hara character just came to the forefront. Like her writing just pushed her forward. Like she was the most interesting character and she became the protagonist. Yeah. And in the movie, she marries three times mm-hmm. and is uh, someone of uh, uh, questionable virtue. Feels uh, no sympathy for the people that she marries who are all milk toast losers as well. So, yeah. I mean, like, there is that strength in, as a man, like, I can't project myself at the time that the movie came out mm-hmm. when there was nothing going on, right? Yeah. And that, like, to see a character like this that resonated all over the place, the novel, even in other countries, like in the book, um, frankly, my dear, it's written about like some prisoners got the book and I believe uh, the Philippines, they were like political prisoners and it inspired them to keep going, reading the a page every day. And I mean, the movie's a bit of a decaying monument now. Yes. I mean, but but for, for many decades after it come out, it would be successfully re-released. Over and over again. Well like into it, the 90s. It really meant like something special for the people who like loved it. Yeah. And I think that on that level, this is not for me. Like I can't connect yeah. with it in that way. And I don't think that the film like made people bad or anything like that. I just think it happened to like connect with the human race in the way that we are. Yeah. Another thing that surprised me about the movie as I was watching it this time was given how popular it was by far the most popular movie of its day it is like a movie from a woman's point of view and mm-hmm. it's a very feminine film. Which is funny that like all of its directors, other than George Cooker, who was fired a few weeks into shooting, they were all like manly men, specifically mm-hmm. Victor Fleming, who is the main credited director. He was like the manliest of manly directors. George Cukor, maybe not the manliest of all. No, uh, I mean, he was known as a woman's director. Yeah. So, And like, this is a movie that I think would have sort of fit into the mold of what were then called women's pictures. Mm-hmm. There's something... And I'm not saying this in a derogatory way, but there's something rather soap opera-ish about the story. And we haven't mentioned David Oselznik, who is the, like, puppet master the of author. this whole picture. Yeah. yeah, The producer who shepherded it every step of the way, who would keep the novel and, like, make sure that, like, mm-hmm. all the dialogue matched what was on the page, firing 10 screenwriters mm-hmm. to get it exactly perfect. Mm-hmm. But, you know... The movie's very feminine, even in its kind of aesthetics. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, they're very lush. Yeah. It's a very though... rich aesthetic experience. Although, frankly, I found it a little a little tiring and a little, you know, the sets and the costumes and the uh, photography are so lush and beautiful. But you see the same types of images over and over again over four hours. And once you've seen like the uh, silhouette on the background uh-huh. as the sun is setting like a dozen times, you're <laughs> like, OK, I'm good. But it's also like these rooms are just so cavernous, cavernous and ornate. And mm-hmm. you see the same kinds of colors and textures over and over again. And so much of it that it starts to seem a little tacky after a while, a little tasteless, frankly. And, and I feel that like after three hours like the miserableness just keeps piling up like people are dying horrible stuff is happening i think most of the good stuff is in the first half of this movie yeah where she where the scarlet hair character is really bad but it's that kind of bad that a teenager kind of goes through and it's also like all the civil war stuff which i guess is maybe what appealed to the to the to the masculine that opening like crawl of the movie back in the days where there were knights and ladies masters and slaves oh yeah Oh, if we could go back to that time. So fuck you, movie. Okay, let's get back to that in a sec. Yeah. But, you know, the Civil War stuff is, uh, you know, breathtaking. Mm -hmm. And there's not enough of it, in my opinion. Well, Uh, I mean, a lot of people complain that, like, there's no big battle scenes or anything like that. It actually kind of stays away uh from it. And there's that one incredible shot that we all remember of the camera pulling out. You see all the (laughs) all that misery. Yeah. Right before Scarlett O'Hara goes, I'm tired of hearing people moan and die. I'm Mm going to go home. I had some trouble with this movie. I think just on the level of I don't think it's a very good piece of storytelling. Mm. And, you know, it's remembered as a great epic piece of storytelling. But, you know, aside from four or five sort of breathtaking scenes, most of the movie unfolds, you know, as just two-hander scenes in rooms. Yeah. Um, and every scene feels longer than it should. And you see the same kind of scenes over and over again. So many scenes repeated of Scarlett O'Hara and Ashley having the same conversation. It's like, what is the film story? And it's just Scarlett O'Hara 
persevering. Like, she doesn't learn anything. If anything, her kind of growth is stunted because of the Civil War. So she kind of hardens and has to do what needs to be done. And she learns no lesson. And at the end, when everything has been torn away from her, and people seem to forget that, like, Rhett Butler abandons her Mm -hmm. and, like, leaves the end of the movie, leaving her alone in this house that she built up with no one around her Mm -hmm. in this empty cavernous mansion where she's probably going to die and years later they'll find her because nobody's looking for her. Yeah. But I was kind of struck by, even though this is a very rich and complex film in many ways, in many ways it's also frustratingly simple. Yeah. Well, like I said, there's no change, right? And, like, not a lot is is happening in it on a narrative level. But that could play <laughs> into why it's so popular. Because like uh-huh. once that template is set up in the first act, it's just variations of that, right? Yeah. So if you like this one thing, you're going to get four hours of it. Yeah, and that's on every level. The visual level, mm-hmm. the oral level. The sonic level, level yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like the biggest thing is that like this idea of romance is like you said, a very complex one. It almost plays into this idea of like the Fifty Shades of Grey kind of thing and yeah. its popularity. The concept of like domination mm-hmm. and to be subservient to someone, that's mm-hmm. attractive to the people that really love the movie. That- but they have to paint it in this big, great love story. Even if the film in of itself, does not play into that. Well, the movie is very interested in, like, power dynamics, even if it doesn't think it's interested in it. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, this is a film about the antebellum South and the Reconstruction period. I mean, slavery is all over this movie, even if the movie doesn't think it's all over this movie. Oh, it's all over this movie. You know, the power dynamic, you know, whether it's racial dynamics or uh, gender power dynamics are, mm-hmm. are all over this film and i think that must be something that people resonate r- like in an unconscious way like, yeah i think so like i mean no one would want to admit that like oh if we could only go back to this time where things feel more pure well this is something that i really didn't like about the movie and you know it's it's hardly a controversial thing to say at yeah. this point but like racist well like it is racist and it's racist in a way that where it's like doesn't even it's very coy about it and it's, that's the problem because yeah. that is like a very insidious racism right yeah. where it's like oh it wasn't so bad like this is okay look at these black soldiers who are going to go fight for the south they want to do this yeah oh look at these carpetbaggers coming from up north they're the real villains yeah they're the real racists i mean the film never ever underlines the idea that like they're fighting because of slavery no and I think everything in here is very strategic. Mm -hmm. And the fact that Hattie McDaniel was given the supporting actor award is almost like justification. Like, it can't be that bad if they gave her an award for it, right? right. And she does have a very showy part in the film. And she's very strong and she's in command of certain scenes. But Scarlett Harris still treats her like garbage Mm -hmm. and like treats her as a slave, like every black character in this film. Yeah, and like a, a movie that is talking about like the... Yeah, romanticizing the Old South and the way of life. Mm-hmm. You know, what it's romanticizing is slavery. Yeah. And, and, you know, frankly, I think Birth of a Nation is a better film than this mm-hmm. because uh, not only is it is there more going on in it, not only are the, is the Civil War stuff more astonishing, uh, but it, it moves faster and it's a more dynamic piece of storytelling. And it's actually about what it's about. Yeah. I mean, The Birth of a Nation is an absolutely deplorable and reprehensible movie in lots mm-hmm. of ways. You know, it's malicious, but like, it's not subtext. No, yeah, it's like, not insidious. It's right fucking there for you to deal with. And it's almost like <laughs> the insidiousness makes it worse. That's how there can yeah. be still like magazines of Gone with the Wind yeah. on the shelf at Rexall. That's right. Uh, but I mean, like, I, I don't know if we're going to get any angry letters from Gone with the Wind lovers saying that we don't understand. But uh, I think we've shown it justice. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> now off with its head. <laughs> <laughs> I don't I don't really enjoy it. Good theme song, though. <laughs> Gone with the wind. Dun, 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 dun. Yeah, that's right. A couple hey. of good scenes of people, you know, uh, in silhouette against uh, f- orange sky. Yeah, it reminds you of something like Bride with White Hair. Am I right? <laughs> yeah, I'd say yeah, here. My review is uh, five good scenes stingily distributed across four hours. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So let's move on to Wizard of Oz. Now, I got problems with Wizard of Oz as well. I'm just kidding. This one's fun. (laughs) Uh, Wizard of Oz was a film that I really had no affinity for as a child. Uh, I think I saw it probably. My parents put me in front of the TV and it was playing. I'm sure channels aired it all the time. And I was aware of 
every element of it, but it's not a film I return to very much. I think when our parents were growing up, my parents and probably yours, mm. like the, the Wizard of Oz was a movie they'd play on TV every year. I mean, that's what made it popular. Yeah, like boomers. at the box office, it actually didn't do too well. Mm. And it wasn't until it sold into syndication in the late 50s, early 60s, that it really took off. And it, it would be an annual thing on yes. TV. People would wait every year for it. And, you know, my dad, I watched it with my dad this weekend. Actually. Oh, really? Yeah. And it's my dad's favorite movie. Huh. Uh, and he told me that, you know, there was one year when they got a color TV set and it he, blew his mind, like his hair back. Yeah. <laughs> he didn't know that it was in color uh, that when she opens the door. In yeah. Oz, that uh, must be crazy as a kid seeing that. Yeah. The thing I love about Wizard of Oz is that it is so weird and that it is so popular. This was, I think, the first movie I ever saw. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was certainly the first movie I ever loved. If you know, my mom kept a diary of my early uh, years. Yes. And there were a couple of years in that diary when, like, I was watching The Wizard of Oz every day, apparently. Wow. And, like, and, like I would, like, run around with, like, uh, a belt coming out of the back of my pants, like the Cowardly Lion. <laughs> that was your favorite character? Yeah, I guess so. I liked it when I watched it this week, and I can see why people love it. Mm-hmm. And I think it's a movie that it is so baked into every piece of entertainment for the last 30 years that it's tough for me to enjoy it because mm-hmm. I felt like I've watched it a hundred times already. Every song that came out, I'm like, yeah, I know that song. I know the words of that song and I haven't watched this movie in a decade. And, you know, it's, I guess, different when you have the kind of relationship I have to it because, mm-hmm. you know, my my relationship is not through cultural osmosis. Yeah. It's from watching it a million times as a kid. So, you know, uh, it's like being reunited with old friends. <laughs> exactly. And, and hearing, the, hearing the songs again. You were mentioning to me before this that you didn't think the music was that great uh i mean again i think it's the problem of cultural osmosis is that i know all these songs mm-hmm. so it's like turning the radio on and you're like ah, this song again <laughs> like you've heard it already and because i have no affinity for it as a kid to hear like somewhere over the rainbow i've heard this song a thousand times <laughs> and because i have no emotion tied to it yeah to see it on screen i go yeah okay i know the song what really excited me were the scenes that aren't parodied like when she fights the tree that throws apples at her that seems great like i was like yes this is great or all the vaudevillian skits between the cowardly lion and the other guys she's with that oh, yeah. stuff i There's love some real three stooges <laughs> shenanigans yeah. uh i mean even though i've seen this movie a million times it's probably been four or five years since i saw it last mm-hmm. And you know how they say that uh, movies don't change, you change. Mm -hmm. Well, watching it this time, like the whole texture of it seemed different to me somehow. Like, Mm. you know, I've seen so many movies since then that are like, you know, CGI blockbusters that when you go look to... Oz the Great and Powerful. Well, you look back at... Yeah, Oz the Great and Powerful, frankly. Yeah. But, you know, you look back at this movie, the original blockbuster, uh, and everything is so tactile and tangible and everything has texture, you and, know? And again, this was another film by committee. Uh, specifically, mm-hmm. it was kind of run by Arthur Freed, who would go on to run the MGM musical unit. Uh, the Wizard of Oz being one of the first, like, full-on music in the storyline kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, there were other films before then, like... It was Love... stuff like the Broadway Melody or something. Yeah, or, and yeah. like Love Me Tonight by Ruben Mamoulian did have um, songs integrated into the plot, but that was more of an anomaly than it was the norm. Mm-hmm. It wasn't until like 1940-ish that Arthur Freed really started to push the kind of storage of a musical with directors like Vincent Minnelli. Well, in this movie, I loved the painted backdrop Oh, love it. I loved, you know, all the props and costumes in Munchkin Land. The Munchkin Land scene is mind boggling. Mm-hmm. It's like Bollywood or something. Yes. I loved the texture of the makeup on the Wicked Witch's face or the or the tip Just a hundred minutes too. I, I, oh my God. This movie, like it flies by so fast so fast and i was also struck on this time by how quickly it convinces you of these four as a unit yes given that you know you have three scenes where one by one you're introduced to the scarecrow the tin man and the lion and then after that like you're sold on them as a group together and you like them like they're fun characters that you want to spend time with yeah they're endearing in a way that like I can understand why kids would like fall in love with them, especially like all their shtick, like the scarecrow, his hay keeps falling out, and like the lion who's like, put him up, put him up. up. Like that stuff is great. I like it when he starts crying and then he starts like wiping <laughs> his tears with his tail. And the fact that this was a film by committee, 
again, credited principally to Victor Fleming, the director of Gone with the Wind, who left Wizard of Oz uh, a few weeks before it was done to go direct Gone with the Wind. And he had a nervous collapse while making Gone with the Wind. Yeah, took a break and then came back. Although he is the credited director of both films, so I guess this is the Victor Fleming episode. Yeah, it is the Victor (laughs) Fleming episode. But he's a director that, like, most people would not even call an auteur because he was a straight-up company man. He would take whatever script, whatever project was given to him, and just shoot it. Aside from these two movies, I mean, he did Captain Courageous. Courageous. Yeah. But aside from that, not a lot of other classics. No, not ones that people usually talk about. He was like a man's man again. And not only would he do whatever job was given to him, but he was also a guy that passed away fairly early in his life Mm. before the kind of auteurist kind of revival could happen. Well, I don't think that would have claimed him. Ooh, Uh, you know what? I think if he was still making movies, they would have probably grabbed him. Okay. (laughs) Because he would have been like the guy who made these big blockbusters who were making little like films as his career went on. But The Wizard of Oz is a movie like Casablanca where there's kind of like no one guiding voice and mm-hmm. it's it's you're, you're seeing all the units of old hollywood working you know firing on all cylinders again 10 screenwriters writing the script i, I mean it's incredible that the movie hangs together as well as it does so again it's mostly arthur freed who's like pushing stuff forward and kind of shaping it as we've said again bad man arthur freed <laughs> yeah. the worst hollywood executive uh you know i think the cast of this movie is incredible mm-hmm. uh, margaret hamilton is the witch especially she's so scary those special effects man when like she disappears in a puff of smoke and you're like how did they do that and then you learn later on that the explosion actually burned all the skin off her hands and like half her face was burnt as well yeah yeah you understand uh how they did that <laughs> and why they don't do that anymore uh, but oh, it's on screen and it's amazing oh hey did you know that one of the lollipop guilds Uh, is the main guy from Freaks. I did not know that. Yeah. Wow. I mean, I actually read (sighs) a book on Wizard of Oz this week, and it's kind of amazing that even in 1989... The author was treating it like seriously, not as a puff piece and like talk Mm. to everybody. And they actually paint this picture of how this movie came together, which was a time that was pure studio Mm. where like directors were not the artists. They were just the people who kept things running. It was the producers that were mostly in charge. And but there was all these other departments Mm. running as well. And it was mostly these like dictatorships Mm. of like people in charge, just kind of like punishing people and like making them do it and if they stepped out of line they'd be fired or even worse and i mean we we've also heard lately about how awful women were treated in this system just terrible like, can you imagine the idea of a seven-year contract and yeah. people are like oh yeah sure this is completely legal i'll sign this well i mean judy garland was destroyed you know, by mgm yeah like she was addicted to pills uh because of them there's a story where she kept laughing in a take when the cowardly lion was like crying and stuff like that and she couldn't get out of it victor fleming just walked up and slapped her in the right. face and she was of course like forced into a marriage practically with vincent minnelli a, mm-hmm. gay, a gay man yeah uh, just to give her a uh family friendly image <laughs> when in reality if you read her life there's nothing sadder yeah it's a monstrous uh, system <laughs> frankly uh although well, man, we got wizard of oz so, some of these movies were pretty good yeah um, you look at that movie now and see the echoes of all the misery that went into its making yeah judy garland playing the little girl her breasts taped down to make her look younger mm. no problem you know that book from 1989 like probably a lot of the people involved in the movie were still alive all of the them time. were alive and they were all interviewed i remember as a kid seeing an episode of mr rogers neighborhood where mr rogers visited margaret hamilton mm. and she showed like the witch's costume and basically the episode was explaining to kids you know don't worry i'm not a real witch because margaret hamilton as you said before in the film is terrifying to a child yeah this is the character that you are threatened with in nightmares oh yeah and i think that when you watch the movie you really clue in if you're paying attention of how it would affect a kid like uh the much academically written about scene where you see um dorsey's aunt being like dorsey dorsey where are you and then it turns into the witch and and not only does it turn into the witch but the witch starts mocking her saying dorsey dorsey where are you like there's no safety like you will die and no one will save you i'll tell you two scenes that terrified me Mm -hmm. as a kid and that i would have to leave the room for yeah one was the flying monkey scene where uh the the monkey's tear apart the scarecrow and then you see his like withered corpse dismembered like body be yeah. like they threw me over here and they threw me over here that image is is very upsetting when you're three yeah and then the other scene that terrified me was at the end when she goes how about a little fire scarecrow and she throws fire at his and arm you see and the scarecrow on fire and he's like ah, ah. he's screaming in yeah. agony yeah <laughs> i mean this is a film that like the more you read about it the more horrifying it is like the fact that the first person who played the tin man buddy ebsen yeah actually played the tin man for two 
two weeks and then he suddenly found he couldn't breathe and it's because they were putting pure aluminum dust on his face <laughs> and he was breathing it in which actually caused his lungs to seize up they don't know why exactly it happened they think it may have been an allergic reaction or something like that mm-hmm. but he was taken off the film and was replaced by another tin man and that tin man they put paste instead of powder on his face while we're talking about uh, lore connected with this movie one person they considered for the Wizard of Oz was W.C. Fields. Fields, which I think in certain ways he might have been better, but also he would have his star persona would have overwhelmed the part, I think. I think that uh, the Wizard of Oz, its message is like the best one you can give to kids, mm-hmm. which is that figures in power are actually weaklings who can do nothing. Yeah. And that you already have the ability to do the stuff that you want to do. Yeah. And that you don't need any magic or anything like that. But it does also have a message that's not so great, which is just stay home. Yeah, don't do anything. That last scene, I mean, you could be very generous and say like, oh, she realizes that the happiness that she always wanted is at home. But then... I remembered she left because they were going to kill her dog. That's the reason she ran away. And she came back. They're still going to kill her dog. They do not acknowledge that. So after the credits roll, Toto is going to get one in the back of head. It also just so flies in the face of everything we've seen. Like, why would you want to go back to Kansas after this amazing Technicolor Wonderland where you met three friends who are way better than any friends you have in (laughs) Kansas? And like the novels it's based on. Oz is not a dreamland. Like, it's Mm. actually real, and the main character wants to escape to it and has amazing adventures there. Well, it's almost like the message they wanted to tell before World War II, which is like, no, home is good. Don't go anywhere else. It's just so disingenuous coming from all these Hollywood people who did not stay on the farm. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. You know? Uh, Yeah. But did you know this movie was actually kind of reclaimed by gay audiences in the 60s before Stonewall? Mm -hmm. Because gay audiences at the time were so starved for representation that they would kind of like this is where camp came from basically they they would sort of project onto these older films so like in their reading of the film Oz became like the alternate world where you know the closeted farmhands we see in the Kansas scenes end up being able to live their true lives well Judy Garland became a gay superstar in the last years of her life going on tour mostly to crowds of sweet old ladies and gay people exactly so I think that about covers it for the Wizard of Oz (laughs) yeah Uh, you know good movie yeah yeah have you ever heard of it check it out and uh, I like to note that even though it's a Chevy Chase movie about it the little people in the film were actually fairly well behaved and the rumors of them being monsters that were drunk all the time was blown completely out of proportion supposedly what happened was that they were drunk a lot of the time because people would keep buying them drinks anyway that book i read about the wizard of oz i don't have it in front of me so i don't have the title 1989 is the main one if you have any interest in the film i would highly recommend reading it because it is a warts and all kind of a book that interviews everybody even like ruben mamoulian who at one point was going to maybe make the movie is interviewed in the book so great stuff oh by the way if you play this podcast synced up to dark side of the moon you gotta wait five minutes then you do it and you flip it over when you reach the end it will sync up perfectly have you ever seen dark side of oz no i haven't actually Uh, me neither uh you know i'm not afraid of pot smoke that would have to be it used to play at the blur cinema all the time i feel like i missed my opportunity yeah as per usual you can send us letters at important cinema club podcast at gmail.com uh, this week on our Patreon, we talk about the big 10th year anniversary film. Of course, yes, I know. You guys just jumped in and said it. We're talking about Jackie Chan's and Jet Li's The Forbidden Kingdom, <laughs> the film where they finally come together. What do me and Will think about it? Well, you're going to have to pay $5 to find out. And if you do, every month you'll get four new episodes of The Important Cinema Club exclusive to the Patreon. And that's uh, patreon.com slash The Important Cinema Club podcast. Also, The Forbidden Kingdom, a movie with a few superficial narrative similarities to The Wizard of Oz. Yep, it's a teenager who wants to escape his, I guess, hellscape of a um, New York backlot on a studio <laughs> set to go to the fantastical land of China, where he teams up with a, a monk and a drunken man. And, you know, characters who we saw in his regular life yep. appear in new guises. It's, it's exactly the same movie, and they go on a quest. And know. if you want to watch more Wizard of Oz-inspired content, don't forget Kentucky Fried Movie. <laughs> <laughs>
yeah. which has a great um, Enter the Dragon parody that ends with a Wizard of Oz joke. Okay. You don't remember that? <laughs> no, I don't. Although Top Secret also has a Wizard of Oz joke. <laughs> All right. So as far as letters go this week... The first letter is from Adam Mele. He goes, hey guys, I was wondering if you had any thoughts on the IMDb top 250 films list. It's something that fascinated and repelled me for a while that I can't seem to get my mind around. Do you think it's representative of anything or anyone, the public at large, red edit film pedants and dudes of a certain age? These kinds of lists are arbitrary by nature, but is there any point to one where Deadpool 2 could just about knock off something like the best years of our lives? And Hotel Rwanda, Jurassic Park, Stalker, The Passion of Joan of Arc, and Ben-Hur all exist in consecutive order next to each other? Is The Shawshank Redemption really the best movie of all time? I think you've answered your question, frankly. Uh, <laughs> uh, do I put any um, weight behind IMDb's top 250? No. No, not at all. I have never written an IMDb review or rated any IMDb. Uh, maybe I would have done it like 10 years ago when it was something that I recently discovered. But it quickly became a place of horrible people and who rate films most often maliciously. Well, what you've got to realize, first of all, is that IMDb ratings are a self-selecting audience. Yes. So, you know, you go on and you vote for the movies. And who are the people who are voting for movies on IMDb? It's teenage boys mm -hmm. early 20 something boys what's that boondock saints is the second best movie of all time well number four is the dark knight Ugh. um number uh 11 here i see lord of the rings the fellowship of the ring uh number 14 inception i mean you know some of these movies aren't okay number 19 on the list right now is avengers infinity war ranking just ahead of seven samurai <laughs> uh, and uh number 26 uh, Roberto Benigni's Life is Beautiful. <laughs> and then, you know, if you go further down on the list, you see, like, a lot of, yeah, like, I don't know, Deadpool 2 or something like that, like, current releases. It's really not useful for anything, I don't think. Nah, don't look at it. I mean, I would actually be happy if they took away the IMDb rating score, because mm. I'm not going to lie, like, I'm influenced by that when I click on a movie and I see, ah, uh, 3.6, even though I know, like, why should I trust this? I don't know these people. They don't represent me or people that I trust their opinion. Well, that system gets so gamed as mm -hmm. well because, you know, people will do Reddit campaigns to be like, we've all got to give one star to Star Wars The Last Jedi exactly. or like that. Like, it doesn't you know? mean anything. Yeah. So, nope. I put no weight into that. But man, the AFI Top 100, of course, that's our Bible, right, Will? Not so sure about that. <laughs> I mean, if you had to pick any of those lists, maybe the Sight and Sound list. Yeah, I think that's probably the one. Or that I, has the I, Jonathan Rosenbaum's Top 1000. <laughs> that's right, that you can find in uh, Essential Cinema, I that's believe, right. the book. Yeah. Thanks very much for the letter, Adam. All canons are problematic. That's the that's the 100%, disclaimer. Yeah. except for the Important Cinema Club canon, yes. which is the complete works of the Three Stooges, <laughs> Jackie Chan's Drunken Master 2, and let's say the Nutty Professor. <laughs> yeah. And throw in a Brasson every now and yeah, then. Yeah, that's right. Know? Don't forget uh, Army of Darkness, Sam Raimi. Yeah. Our next letter is from Dominic Sinicola, who a oh. long time ago wrote some really good reviews for the Important Cinema Club. A good early supporter of us. Thanks, Dom. We're still appreciative of that. He goes, hi, Justin and Will. I sent this to two email addresses because no matter how many times I've heard the address, I can't remember which one it is. <laughs> Hopefully this message makes its way to you somehow. Uh, you can actually go to the show notes that you can find at filmtrap.com for the Important Cinema Club and you, the email is written. So I say it uh, twice every episode, but you can also just copy and paste it from there. And the letter goes, I've been listening to you guys for a while. And one thing I've noticed, or maybe probably intuited, is that no matter how you feel while watching a movie, you'll make it to the end out of self-imposed sense of obligation. First question, is that true? I would say yes. For the movies we talk about on this podcast, yes. And also for most movies, mm. but... You know, as I get older, there are some that I haven't finished yet. Life is too short. Life is too short. <laughs> I'm asking because I feel the same way, which might have to do with responsibility regarding my part-time job, but also because I feel trapped within the soul-emptying cycle of cinephile validation promoted by Twitter and Letterboxd, and whatever other social media encourages us to list movies we've seen to let people know that we've seen them. Mm -hmm. If you get too drunk to make it through Warcraft, have you actually seen Warcraft? I mean, you know, he's half-joking, but... But this is definitely a dilemma that I've had. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. Most people I know would never give a shit about something like this. When people look to you to form coherent, authoritative judgments about films, you gotta sit through all of Warcraft to be able to be fair about Warcraft, right? Which leads me to ask, 
What are your thoughts on incomplete consumption of art? If one can validly criticize something that they haven't fully experienced. And then, what's the last movie you started and still have yet to finish? Does it really matter when we have such limited times as it is? When our lives are so short? Oh God, what are we gonna do with our time? Granted, you may have been asked this question before, so sorry. And last, I'd love to hear a pod on Werner Herzog. He's probably my favorite director, but even I haven't seen all of his movies. So maybe something like Lesser Seen Herzog, like the recently mentioned Invincible or the recent Salt and Fire. Stay blessed, Dom. Well, thanks very much for the letter, Dom. And as far as the Werner Herzog stuff, we got something in the works. Yeah. Uh, we won't spoil what it is, but if you look at our past directors that we've done, like really big ones, you can probably guess what it is. Yeah. <laughs> and can you talk about art that you haven't watched all of? I would say you shouldn't. Yes. And specifically, I would say movies. Yeah. I think that other forms of art are different. Like, like TV shows. TV shows. Because they're told differently. Mm -hmm. You can watch two seasons of The Wire and say, like, I don't like it. Mm. Like, I think that's a valid thing to say. Y you can dip in and out of newspaper comic strips. Yes. Yeah. Uh, you could read half a book and say, this is not for me. Yeah. Well, I mean, frankly... You know, if you start a movie and within 30 minutes you don't like it... It's not going to get any better. Odds are it's not going to get better. That said, you know, movies are shortish and information can be recontextualized. So, like, it may be different. It may be bad in a, in a somewhat different way than you thought. Mm -hmm. uh, or, you know, new information will come along in the movie that doesn't make the movie better, but just either adds to how bad it, could it is. It could be, like, or... a moment that, like, pops for you and yeah. that you remember that moment. Yeah. And I think that's... If there's a shocking twist ending, yeah, that... something that happens in movies more than it happens in books, because books are more of a kind of active experience, while movies are more of a passive one. The information is given to you. I, but I also think that, like, if you don't, you know, have a podcast to do about the mm. movie or you're not. Here's a tip or let's say a cheat code. Just don't watch it. Yeah. Like, you don't need to watch Warcraft. If you look at this movie and you go, I'm not going to like this. Like, I know I'm not going to like this. Mm. Just like, don't watch it. That was a lesson that took me longer than I thought it should have to like learn. Like you said uh, last week, like, you're not going to see Solo. And you're like, ah, feels good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because, you know, when I was a younger, dumber man, I would just go see these things out of some misplaced sense of cultural obligation. Mm -hmm. yeah. That's something that I never experienced. The, yeah. the idea of like, I need to see this in the now to give my thoughts about it. Mm -hmm. I mean, like, Letterboxd doesn't really like lend to much like discourse mm -hmm. like you're not sitting in like a cafe and like arguing about mm -hmm. movies on letterboxd and the same thing with twitter there's not much discourse on twitter it's more like yelling pithy things at each other what's the last thing you didn't finish how about you let me think about it do you got anything um yeah maybe two weeks ago i got and i may finish it one of these days because i uh, i didn't hate it or anything but mm. i got halfway through jess franco's uh sinfonia erotica <laughs> And, you know, Jess Franco... That's a good one. That's a good one. Je to be Jess Franco by. makes the kind of movies that you fall asleep during. Yes. I mean, that's a big problem. I mean, a big problem is just giving movies your full attention, right? Oh, yeah. Like, in this day and age, we'd be lying if, like... You know, in the importance of every time we sit down, like I watch seven movies a week, I just sit down and do nothing else and just watch that movie. That's not true. <laughs> like, it's impossible. Mm. Um, and, like, some of the movies, like, maybe I'll start it and then... I'll go like, I can't give him my full attention. I'll have to start like watch it later and yeah. put it away. And because I watch so very little of them, I can't even think of anything right now. And I'm actually just looking behind me at the Blu-rays that I have to see if there's something that I'm like, oh, I started that and didn't finish it. Nothing that I can think of. Wow, we've got a real hardcore cinephile over here. I know, I'm looking at... I mean, I have a stack of Blu-rays here. And the reality of it, a lot of them I just haven't watched yet. The Man from Planet X, I keep meaning to sit down. You know what? I did start. I watched like five minutes of it and then I didn't uh, finish it. So Man from Planet X, the Edgar G. Elmer joy. But I did listen to both commentary tracks on it. So, you know, I think I did my due diligence. I have seen it before. There's a good commentary on there with Shirley Elmer. Oh, it's a great commentary. Yeah. Uh, I got Weaver. so excited because I'm like, Will, this is coming out. I can't believe it. And Will's like, I bought it. It came out last year. And I'm like, man, I my finger's not on the pulse. That's a little bit of access to the sort of thing that happens in our DMs. <laughs> yeah. 
the exciting stuff. We talk about uh, Blu-rays that are coming out and books that are coming out. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Uh, Will's like, hey, this is Gone with the Wind book you should read. And I'm like, ooh. That's right. <laughs> yep. And we never leave our house. And this podcast is our life completely. No social lives. All right. So we're uh, running a little bit long. We do have some more letters that I'd like to read, but we'll do them next episode. So if you sent something in and we didn't respond, we got it and we'll just tackle it another time. But next week... We're going to be staying in classic Hollywood, won't we, Will? We're going to be doing uh, the filmmaker Dorothy Arzner, who was one of the few female directors in classic Hollywood. That's I've her. never seen any of her films. Her most popular film is Dance Girl Dance. Mm-hmm. But she's somebody who, you know, uh, as is the case with many female directors, is uh, was somewhat neglected during her lifetime and is being kind of reappraised late. I'm really excited to watch her films yeah. because... Uh, I've actually read a few things about her and she had a very interesting life as well. So that'll be next episode. Mm -hmm. And until then, my name is Justin Clue. I'm Will Sloan. Uh, As per usual, you can again send us letters at pointcinemaclubpodcast at gmail.com. You can follow Will at Uh, Will Sloan ESQ. And you can follow me on Twitter at DeClueJ. That's D-C-L-O-U-X-J. And make sure to visit filmtrap.com. All right. Thank you very much for listening. Justin, I'm really jealous of you this I know. week. Yep. Uh, because you went to World Motor and Media Day. And if people are like, Motor and Media Day, what is that? Well, Motor and Media is the name of the company that is run by Mr. Matt Farley, who you may remember from the episode, Matt Farley has won at life where we talked about his films. Don't let the river be sketch you, local legends, and tons of great indie stuff that not enough people are talking about. Matt Farley is the most prolific Spotify songwriter. He's written something like 20,000 songs yep. on every conceivable subject, and that's how he makes his living. Yep. He's and, a uh, mad genius. And like uh, his songs, for the most part, are very simple, like piano melodies, and he sings about towns and birthdays like the name of the person then their birthday a lot of songs about poop a lot of songs about poop which are his biggest listenership yeah he's found out the kids love to click on songs about poop yes he says that since alexa has become used regularly his income has doubled because Mm -hmm. kids go play the poop song even if they don't know that one exists and then they'll start playing one of his songs but the reality of Uh, Matt Farley is that not only does he star, write, and produce movies, but he also writes like really raw emotional music that is on Spotify as well, but it oftentimes gets lost in like all these songs that he writes. And it's not helped by the fact that he names his like real albums under the names of the like joke albums. So like the man who sings about like cities and towns, which will be like, this is the Boston song also has an album called I've never left my hometown Mm -hmm. about that man and his struggle with getting out of his shell and going somewhere else to find something better and the love of his life that like really good stuff. So Matt Farley does world Motown day where for five and a half hours, he plays all of his, Real songs. And where is uh, World Motown Day? It's in Danvers, Massachusetts, which is where Matt Farley lives, which is 30 minutes away from Boston. Mm -hmm. So me and my partner, Emily Milling, who are huge Matt Farley film and music fans, decided we're going to head down. Our friend Peter Kaplowski, who is fighting currently for Matt Farley fan number one, has gone last year and was going again this year. So we're like, we love this guy. We just want to experience what this is. And we knew it was going to be surreal. Because, like, beyond just seeing him play music, we love his movies and we watch them multiple times. His films are so individual and in that every actor, like, seems like this, not, I don't want to say weird, but, like, special person. Like, there's a bit of Tim and Eric to him where it's, his casts are loaded with, like, family and friends. Yeah, just, like, non-actors. Yeah, normal people and, and who he gives them these characters that are sort of weird characters to play mm. and... Uh, very stilted dialogue that they deliver in a sort of stilted way. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's like, you know, total backyard filmmaking. But at its purest form, like, it's like what you wish every backyard movie would be. Yeah. As we said in the episode. And and you, if you watch all of his movies, you get like very affectionate towards this stock company. You Mm -hmm. know, he has the same 10 or 15 actors who show up in movie after movie after movie in different roles. Uh, At one point on stage, Matt Farley went... Oh, we have a very special guest in the audience. It's my aunt, 
the woman who always nods. And we turned around. And there's that woman, and you know who she is. It's the blonde hair in the yeah. movie, and she nods, and that's what she did. That's like being in a Matt Farley movie. <laughs> yeah, it is. Okay, did you meet Kevin McGee? No, I did not. Kevin McGee could not make it to the event. He was he was keyed in. He showed up last year, but due to events out of his control, he could not make it, which I think is good, mm. because I didn't meet everybody. But it feels like I did, because everybody was there. Uh, for people who have watched Don't Let the River Beast Get You, and if you don't know who Matt Farley is, go listen to the episode we did on him, and then come back here. That episode is, I think, one of the things I'm proudest of that we've done, because <laughs> I think like we got him uh, a small but reasonable number of new fans. Matt Farley, multiple times during the weekend, told me, man, I got a real boost on my movie since he did that episode. Really? Yes, he did. Oh, nice. Uh, I gotta say that Matt Farley, nicest guy. Like, yeah. not only... Did he do this great concert? But there were breaks between each set and he would come around and like talk to everybody and like introduce people to each other. And he had done his research about the people that were there. Like he played uh, my partner, Emily Milling's music. He went on YouTube and took a musical we took that he found himself. That's not under our name. And he played that during the like breaks. Oh, wonderful. (laughs) Well, you know, he paid us, uh, you, me. Uh, Peter and Emily, the ultimate compliment this week when Crazy. He, he wrote a song about each of us. Yeah, if you look at uh, Paparazzi and the Photogs, an album called I Am Not Wasting My Life, <laughs> there is a Justin, Emily, and Will song all one after the other. I think mine is called like Will Sloan, Wonderful Genius or <laughs> yeah, something like that. Yeah. It's like Justin the Clue, Nice Guy. Yeah. And it's not just like a template song where our names are in it. He like lists stuff about us. Yeah, he, he did like, research. Yeah. <laughs> he uh, rhymes the clue, which he croons out the clue with you. <laughs> ah, great stuff. But like at this event, which may be the greatest concert I've ever been to, because it's something that's like, I can't believe I'm here. I can't believe there's only like 24 fans here. And including all of Matt Farley's like friends and relatives, everyone. I'm like, how is he not more popular? Like that this event, you can come down to this and he like puts everything into it. There's shtick. There was like costumes. When you walked into the event, there were two guys in cloaks standing in either corner. And then like 30 minutes later revealed themselves to be Matt Farley and his other bandmate who got up on stage and then started playing. Okay, I've got to figure out a way to go next year because I was kicking myself all weekend (laughs) seeing pictures of you down there. Hanging out with the River Beast who came out and danced at one point. And hey, if we can sweeten the pot, maybe, uh, you know, if important cinema club fans want to go down next year and and perhaps meet me there. (laughs) And me. And and you, if you can can get down again next year, I'm no pressure, of course. Yeah, I mean, if the important cinema club fans uh, want to pay for us to go down to meet us, like we can do a, a crowdfunding campaign because <laughs> yeah, right. you know uh, it costs money to travel, and I would just say also I just want to reiterate while we're talking about Matt Farley, uh, the movie to watch to become a fan is Don't Let the River Beast Get You. Mm-hmm. It's on YouTube. Give it your full attention, and then after that, listen to his songs, and you're gonna go, "Who is this person?" Then go on YouTube and watch Local Legends, mm-hmm. which is the biofilm that he essentially made about himself, mm-hmm. and you'll have like a full endearing portrait of who Matt Farley is. And you can hear Justin's interview with him on our episode about it. Yes. And I like I can't stress again that not only was this so much fun, and I'm just rubbing in Will's face at this point, I know. that it was surreal because everybody was there. Like, oh, there's the poppin' and lockin' uh, homeless <laughs> person from Don't Let the River Beast Get You. Yeah. Uh, there's her, the love of her life, Tom Scalzo, who will have conversations with you. Really nice. I chatted a long time with uh, Charlie, the director of all the Matt Farley mm, films. He was mm. there as well. Um, Charles Roxburgh, yeah. Yeah, that's right. And the best part was that Ido Hootkins, big game hunter, <laughs> was not only dressed like he is and don't let the river beast get you, but he introduced himself to everyone as, hello, I'm Ido Hootkins, big game hunter, who I hear is a pretty big hit with the ladies. <laughs> <laughs> and that is Matt Farley's father. Yes, it is yes. Matt Farley. And, you know, we also got to go and watch Matt Farley play basketball and you could challenge him if you want. And then we went bowling. Oh, man. <laughs> I'm sorry, Will. You know, there just aren't very many directors who, you know, could you imagine if Stanley Kubrick had an event like this? I could not. And this is the thing is that, like, I feel like once people, like, discover him, Farley's going to be huge. And that, like, this is the ground floor. We're working hard. Yeah, we're working hard. You're here to hear first. 